0: good morning center how we doing everyone get here safe i uh i'm from northeast grand rapids so i had a little journey on the expressway and uh, drifted on to 86. So it's a miracle I got here safely. So, um, but man, it's, it's so good to be here. And uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Cody. Um, I'm the connections pastor over at frontline and um, I've had an opportunity to speak here a couple times. And what I've found about the church is even though I don't know everybody here and don't know everybody super well, it just feels right when you're in the community of God, doesn't it? And that's just something that's unified. You can step into a a church you've never been in and it's like your home. And that's just the beautiful thing about, you know, what we have here this morning. And so, um, John, your senior pastor, John, I'm just a huge fan of him. He's just an anointed and gifted leader. And so. I'm just honored to speak and excited for what god has this morning and so we're familiar with the zero collective here right we're pretty we know a little bit about it and so part of why i'm even here is not because john invited me or because a leader invited me to speak part of why i'm here and i get to be here is because of the zero collective um we live in a culture that is pretty dominated by disunity and what's cool about the Zero Collective is the whole purpose of that is a network of different churches that have different methods, different ways of doing things, different strategies, but are is the same. And the why is about Jesus. And so that's why that's why I get to speak here. And there's no greater honor. What we get to be a part of with the Zero Collective, that's special. man. God's in that. And... Um, just as i talk about um you know different the differences between all of our churches right we all have a little bit different expression of worship Um, every one of the church a part of the zero collective reaches different people but the why is the same and so i want to have a little bit of fun just at the top here and talk about different methods um, that we're all going to be familiar with that have changed over time And, um, and that changes our experience of life. So, um, first picture I'm going to put up is a picture of, so if you're under the age of 20, that is a phone book. You may, you may have never used one of those, and um, in 1878, the first phone book was on a piece of cardboard, and there was names written on it of people who owned a phone, right? So that's like cutting-edge technology for that time, and so it got a little bit more sophisticated, so, um, you know, obviously, that, that phone book is able to, you know, look up people's names, you're able to get their, their phone number and their address from that, and so if you're under 20, I'm just teaching you what a phone book is, because you may not have ever used one. So, in the room, show of hands, have you used a phone book before? Oh, wow, look at that. All the young people's hands are not up. They're like, what's a phone book? Is that like the newest iPhone? Like, what is that? So, I, uh, uh, when I was in elementary school, that is how I would call a friend on their home phone, which is also ancient technology. And so, I would, you know, I would put the phone book on the kitchen table and look up the last name and call and hope they would answer. Um, and so, as needed as that was... That's, like, completely obsolete now, right? All of us probably have one, and it's used to weigh something down. That's it. That's all we use it for. So um, the phone book. So next picture is the iPhone. So that's specifically the iPhone 1. So... This was announced in 2007, and now that phone's pretty much obsolete, right? Probably nobody in this room has it. And if you have it, I, or Apple has made it so slow that it's, like, impossible to use at this point. So, you know, you, we just see the speed at which things are shifting. And um, whatever phone or device you have in your pocket 10 years from now, probably going to be obsolete. So you can sense kind of a pattern here. Last picture I want to show. Anyone know what that is? What is it? Model T, there we go. So in 1908, Henry Ford created the first mass-produced vehicle, um, and that's it. And his, his famous line was, you can have any color you want as long as it's black, right? And so just a classic line, I, like anyone here for a good dad joke, I feel like that's like top tier. Um, with his family, he probably sat around dinner. Kids were complaining about what was for, for dinner, and he probably said something like, you can have any food you want as long as it's broccoli, right? Like... He he probably had fun with that, with that phrase. And so we're all familiar with the Model T. And here's the reality. Man, that completely changed our world. Not many people had a car before that time, and now it's mass-produced. And so, um, you know, we're living in in a day and age where things shift so quickly. And so now, if you have a Model T, it's probably in your living room, stanchion with caution tape, because it has so much value. Because there's none of those left, right? And so we see how quickly things move and become obsolete. So, the point I'm trying to make here is the methods we use—they change. The methods we use change, things become obsolete, Um, through culture we see that shift, but the why is always the same. The reason we use a phone is to communicate. The reason we use vehicles is to travel. So methods change and we see that and how quickly that happens, but the why is always the same. And so what if I told you this, we have access to somebody who will never become obsolete We have access to somebody that has more value than the model T or anything else for that matter. And this person is accessible to anybody, regardless of their their status, how much money they have or anything else. And what if I told you there's biblical proof for that? Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Some people today are asking this question, is the church becoming obsolete Is the church becoming obsolete? And so, uh, you know, we're all, especially if you're a young, you're in the younger generation here, you're, you're experiencing this. Um, We have access to so much information and technology. And so there's so much um, communication throughout our world. And we have a lot of people um, who are creating their own identities, that it's, it's not a biblical foundation of an identity. It's identities that we're creating. And so maybe you've heard the term live your truth, right? That's kind of like the mantra of this age. It's like, hey, if you just live your truth, whatever makes you happy, just do that. Um, if you're in the room and, and you're younger, uh, YOLO. Have you heard that one? I'm looking in this. Yep, so I got some head nods. So you, YOLO means you only live once. Same kind of thing. Same kind of thing. YOLO, you only live once. Do whatever you want. Damage your body. Just whatever makes you happy, do that. And so what we see happening is we have people now that say, I don't, I don't need the church. I don't need it because I have Jesus. I don't really need to gather because Jesus goes with me wherever I'm at. I don't need the church. And based on all this, we get to the conclusion that is the church Obsolete? Is it becoming obsolete? Is the church even necessary? There's so many methods and technology and changes and shifts. Is the church kind of in the mess of that? And um, we've all heard of uh, basically what a fad is, right? A fad is just a uh, a widely agreed enthusiasm for something that is short-lived. Right. Maybe Pokemon Go. You don't see too many people walking around still like bumping into traffic, looking at their phone. Right. Because it was a fad. It was something that had high energy for a while. And then it and then it kind of lost steam there. And so there's tons of fads out there. We see them in culture. They come and they go. Um, And so the question is, is the church one of them? Is the church of fat, is it, is it just something that's short-lived, That's a high enthusiasm, and then eventually it's going to be gone? And so the question we have to ask is, well, part of what makes a fat a fat is it's short-lived. And so when we look at the history of the church, um, it outlasted the Roman Empire, it outlasted the Crusades, it outlasted the Middle Ages. And so much like the phone book, the iPhone 1, the Model T, I would agree with this. I agree that church methods become obsolete. Leaders change, things shift, but the church will never become obsolete until the day Jesus comes back. And what we'll see is if you're in the room and you've been at church for 50 years, you're sitting in this room and things are very, are likely very different than what you experienced then. And so what we'll continue to see is there will be innovations and different expressions of worship, But can I get an amen that the why is still the same? So how do we know that the church is needed? It's simple. Because our need for Jesus will never become obsolete. That will always be true of us. God has uniquely designed each of us to love him. He didn't design us to be like anything other than himself. And so if that's true, and if we believe that in the room then there will always be a need in us. And I can just say the fact that this is, this is only continued to grow. And so part of the way that God has designed things and and the way that things are is the church doesn't exist for us. We actually are the church center church is not the church building, right? When we all leave here, it's just a building. What makes this church right now is you guys are here. We are the church And we exist for the world to know him. That's our greatest mission and our greatest purpose is we exist for him so that we can be his hands and feet in the world. So A.W. Tozer, um, he says this. He says, many people say, try Jesus. He's not there to be experimented with. Christ is not on trial. You are. Oof. We live in a time where God and church is in question. People are asking, does it matter? Does it really, do we really need to invest our time there? And we put God to the test and we ask all these questions, but can I just say in the room that God is not fearful of his church, his bride becoming obsolete. He's not. God is not worried about the state in which our world is at right now. As scary as that may seem to us, he's not. He's not worried. God is not confused about what we are to do next. We are. The world is. I find great comfort in that. I got to admit, I get caught up in this stuff. But when my when my uh, posture is towards God, there's confirmation there that he's still in control and he's on the throne. And so... Part of what I want to talk about is last week, we talked all about church, right? We talked about um, why we should belong to it and just the, the really why it's there. And so today, I really want to spend some time on the purpose and the mission of that church, what that means for us, um, how we function in it, and practically what that looks like moving forward. So um, part of what I want to do is we just said, right, church isn't a fad because of how old it is. Things that are old are not fads. Um, And the church is really old and it's been around and um, only God can do this. The enthusiasm in church has always been up here, not emotionally from us, but just how beautiful it is. And that's because of God, and that's the Holy Spirit's work in that. And so as I go and uh, as I talk about what church is this morning, I'm going to go way back. I'm not going to go to yesterday or 100 years. I'm going to go way back to the Old Testament when God started to build his church, and we're going to start a foundation there. So um, we're all familiar with probably Abraham, right? There's a song, Father Abraham. Some of you may know that, could probably rehearse that. So I don't know, maybe we'll do that at the end of service and have a ball with that song, who knows. So um, so Father Abraham, he's, um, um, God's kind of chosen instrument to like basically uh, having this path of redemption laid out. And so there are three, Um, promises that were given to Abraham by God that were part of this redemptive plan that God has for us that matter for our salvation, right? It matters for our relationship with Jesus. So we're going to have those up on the screen, the three promises. So number one, land, So part of the promise was land. um, And it's part of the same reason why this church is here, right? Like we just, we need a place to gather. And so God said, I'm going to increase your descendants. And part of that is they need land. They need a, they need a place to continue to grow, to gather, to be in community. And so number one, uh, the promise is land. And um, what's cool about that is the land was actually, that promise was fulfilled in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. And so we see it started in the old Testament and ends in the old Testament. That promise was fulfilled. The next thing we have is uh, son and family. So God knows at some point, Abraham is going to die. And so what, what, what God wanted to make sure is that his dynasty, his legacy didn't end with Abraham. So part of what was necessary was that there was a next generation that could carry on what God started with Abraham. And so uh, Abraham has a son, Isaac. And um, what's cool is that um, that promise is actually fulfilled in the Old Testament as well. His son, Isaac, was born. He continued that trajectory that God had planted in Abraham. And then when Isaac passed on, then the nation of Israel continued on. So land, son, and family. So those two promises, what's different about those two than the next one I'm going to get into is both of those were fulfilled right there in the Old Testament where it started. Now, the second or the third one is all blessed through you. So all people, all nations will be blessed through you. This one is a culmination of those three promises. So, but before God confirms his final promise to Abraham, he puts Abraham's faith to the test. Some of you are going to know this story. It's going to make us cringe. And it had to do with his son, Isaac who we know would later become the heir of of what Abraham had started. So I'm going to read here in Genesis 1 through two, if you got your Bibles, if not, it'll be up there on the screen. Um, So this is what it says. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied. Here I am. Take your son, your only son. Yes, Isaac, whom you love so much. And go to the land of Moriah, go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Yikes. If you're a parent in the room, you're like, I can't even fathom this, right? I can't even fathom having to sacrifice my son, little alone having God tell me to do it. What's interesting is contextually, um, it was normal for other gods to request child sacrifice for people. So, although it's shocking for us to hear that, and it is shocking um, because we're like, man, we couldn't do that. We'd be arrested today. For them, that was like a normal request from a God to, to offer a child in sacrifice. Um, and so, the question coming out of this reality of, of God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son is this Is he like all the other gods? Is Yahweh like all the other gods? Or is he set apart? Is he different somehow? So that's the question we see here. So here's where the story picks up with, with, um, Abraham and and Isaac. (laughs) So they're having a little father, uh, a father and son road trip, right? The only difference is, is their itinerary maybe look different than some of us in the room, right? His itinerary is, I have to sacrifice my son on this mountain. How is this going to play out? Um, and so they're and and what's interesting too as you think about this they're climbing a mountain. So this trip isn't like a hey we're just going to the backyard and we'll get this done and it'll be over. This is they're they're climbing a mountain. And uh God had revealed to Abraham what was about to happen, but Isaac doesn't know. So Abraham and Isaac are on this journey and e- even in the text you can feel the tension welling up. And at one point Isaac says uh Dad where's the sacrifice and you know, as a dad, what do you say to that? And so he just kind of says, well, God's going to provide it, which later we'll know is true, but he thought it was going to be a son, but he doesn't tell Isaac that and neither does God. And so they get up there and they're building this altar in silence. And at this point, Abraham knows what has to be done. Isaac, you know, he, he now is being bound to this altar So now he knows and just before he um, Abraham actually goes to kill his son. There's a reality right now that sets in the story of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah foretells the story of God and the father and the son Jesus on the cross on Mount Calvary. You see that? You see that parallel there? The story of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah, this is foretelling the story of God the Father and his son Jesus on Mount Calvary. Isaac's carrying the wood for the offering on his shoulders. Jesus carries a cross. Isaac is bound and laid on top of a wood altar. Jesus is bound and nailed to a cross. But here is where the story shifts. Just as Abraham was about to kill his son, God does what only God can do. He provides a lamb to die in his place. God provided his only son, Jesus to die in our place on the cross. And so that's what we see. That's the foretelling of that story, leaning into what Jesus is doing. What Abraham could not do um, and, and was not asked to do in sacrificing his only son, God did on our behalf. He fulfilled the requirement of the sacrifice and he gets all the glory. And so here's what I want you to hear. It was never about sacrificing Isaac because we all know throughout the old Testament, when somebody sinned, something had to die and it was normally an animal. And what we know about that is, is that was temporary. So if somebody sinned again, you have to kill another animal. And so by, by sacrificing Isaac, that was never God's intention. It had nothing to do with that. It wouldn't have solved anything anyway. It'd be like putting a band-aid on a, a giant leak. Here's the reality. God wanted to see the posture of Abraham's heart. And you gotta you gotta imagine, you Abraham, he had to have been like, Really, God? This is the method? You're gonna make me kill my only son. That's the method you've chosen. But here's the reality. He was going to go through with it. Why? Because Abraham was on mission and that mattered to God more than anything that he was sold out to be obedient to what God was saying, even when it seemed insane, which it was. But here's the reality. Abraham was committed to God and he was on mission. And that's the call we have as a church. And so as a result of this, God gives the final fulfillment of the last promise, which is interesting. The two the two promises before, uh, God had just given that to him. Hey, this is going to happen. But Abraham went through a season of testing. Hey, before this happens, I want to make sure that you're all in because there's no room for doubt or turning back. And so once... Once Abraham was willing to kill his only son for this, this, the text picks up at 22, 16 through 18, and God delivers this final promise to him. So this is what it says. This is what the Lord says, because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sand in this in the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All because you have obeyed me. That's so good, isn't it? We have a faithful God. He has promises for us. But can I tell you, it's going to require something of us. And what it says about the all nations will be blessed. God's promise travels from Isaac all the way from the generations to be fulfilled in Jesus on the cross. So between Abraham and Isaac, what we're seeing play out, it literally is foretelling and foreshadowing the reality that we live in today. And that's salvation that only came through Jesus. So even before Jesus ever entered the picture, we have a God that knows the plan. The methods change, things look different, but God knows he's sovereign. He gets the whole picture. And so now we're, we're in this, we're kind of living in the tension um, and we're, we're now living in the, uh, what's called the church age. And so scholars, they call this already and not yet. Um, and basically what that means is Jesus already came and died for our sins, which means there's forgiveness and the Holy spirit in us so that we can live a life worthy, um, of God. And so we there's already that reality, but we, we are in the not yet because Jesus still has to come back. There's still work and things to be done in the kingdom. So we're, we're living in the tension. And there's an example of this in First Corinthians 15, uh, where it says, "Where, O oh, death, is your sting?" And basically, what the author's communicating here is, man, death's still here. We're we're all aware of that. Sin is still very much alive in our world. But the sting has been taken out by the cross. But we're still looking down the road for when Jesus comes back, because He gets to put us back into the garden before things went south. And that's what we're mourning for. That's what our hearts are about. And so our purpose as the church is to give testimony of this kingdom of God that we're experiencing right here and right now. And so I want to, I want to share a bit of my story. Um, and I'll tell you what, before I had entered into a relationship with Amen. Jesus, my life appeared to be worth something Im- to be worth imitating, at least from the outside. It seemed to be a place worth imitating. Um, you know, I had popular status among just my peers. I was a, a good athlete. I was a decent student. I had a loving family. Um, I've always, you know, I've had a job. So, you know, there was nothing glorious about my life, but I was steady and it seemed like my life was worth Imitating, and can I tell you that one night I realized that internally my life was a prison. From the outside, it seemed like everything was okay, and and you know even in high school, I bet my peers would say, Hey, he's confident, he knows where he's going, um, he's sure of himself, he's a good leader." None of that was true. I was terrified. I had no confidence. I had very little self-esteem. I had no purpose. And I realized that even though on the outside, things, to be, things looked to be going okay, there was a huge hole in my heart. It was like a, a prison internally for me. And so I knew, I remember sitting there and I thought, man, nothing's really wrong, but I just feel so empty like something's missing and and I just remember thinking if there's anything that's going to change my reality it's got to be something beyond myself it's got to be a higher being and so one night I gave Jesus a shot I said God I don't know what this looks like but I'm just going to surrender everything to you I'm just going to surrender everything to you and give it a shot not not just like I'm going to test the waters a little bit God I'm all in I laid my pride on the table. I laid all the mess that I was going through. I said, God, I'm all in. Let's see. Let's I'm in for the ride. Let's see what happens. Two days later, I texted my friend who uh, at the time hated church worse than me. And I said, Hey, what are you doing tonight? He said, I'm going to church with some friends. It's like, really? I never thought I'd hear that out of your mouth Ever. And so I said, well, can I go? He's like, yeah. So we drive 40 minutes to a church. And now my arms are out. I'm praising God. I get connected to community. I don't have time to tell the story about how I got tricked into going into a mission trip. But that's a whole nother God story. I end up going on a mission trip. And now I realize that my life would never, ever be the same. God had settled in. (laughs) And what's interesting is... For me, I was experiencing nothing I'd ever experienced before. But what people were experiencing, at least from the outside, is, man, Cody's weird now. That's what my friends were saying. Man, he's different. Like, he's just weird. And I remember I sat down with my mom, and she said, what's going on with you? And to help you understand a little bit, I was very social. I was always out on the weekends. I was always doing things. And part of what God was cultivating in me was a relationship with him. And there wasn't space for sin anymore. And so part of why I spent a season in isolation is God was working on me. And so I couldn't go out and and drink and fool around with girls anymore because God said, I'm calling you higher and you have to take a season where things are new in you. And so when I sat down with my mom, she said, have I like failed you as a mother? like, what's wrong? And I said, I said, mom, I know how obscure the season I'm going through looks like, but I I need you to know that I've never felt so full. I've never felt so much joy. I've never felt so present, even in being in isolation in the season. God has made his dwelling inside of me and there's no greater joy. there was no more prison internally it was just pure bliss just that's where god was but here's the reality the world's going to interpret that very different but that's why we put our faith in jesus and the reason i share my story is this the most pre- precious possession you have is your story it's who you are uniquely You are positioned to help somebody going through an internal battle. And you think you know who it is and who it isn't, but you don't. On the outside, everybody thought things were good, they weren't. You are perfectly positioned to have influence with people. And so, my encouragement is this be the gift that God has made you to be to others, be that gift. You are specifically equipped and you have special influence with people that I don't. And here's the reality. It's not John's job to save everybody. It's not Peter's job to save everybody. God's the only one that can save, but it's a whole church commitment. We all got to be all in. All in. And you'll be here and there will be methods that you don't understand or agree with. But just tune in. Be like Abraham. It's, it's got to be more about the mission. And so I'm going to close with this. I'm going to give um, a few just really practical just points about what it means to live with purpose and on mission within the church. Um, so number one, separate the mission from the method. Here's the reality. And I just touched on that a second ago. Some of us are more in love with the method than the mission. Can I just tell you? I get it. I've been there. But can I invite you? Do what I did and repent. Just repent. Leave it, leave it down there. Can you imagine when God asked Abraham, hey, I want you to sacrifice your son. Do you think he was angry with the method? Oh, yeah. But guess what he did? He did it anyway because he was on mission. So my encouragement is, man, the mission, it's not a program. It's not a style of worship. It's not a political agenda. And the problem is, is when we make an idol of the method, then that gets in the way of the mission. And isn't that why we're all here? At the top, I talked about the Zero Collective and our why. That's what it's all about. Methods will change. They'll shift. And so my encouragement is the mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. Jesus. Don't let any kind of method get in the way of that. That's our mission. Number two, be a contributor, not a consumer. Um, So God did not create us to consume methods of church. And for somebody who have lived this, I spent years in this category being a consumer. Let me save you the suspense. If that's you, you will never be filled. I promise you. That's just not how God has designed it to work. And so when Jesus had 12 disciples, the goal was not that they would just consume him. Jesus knew that in three years he was going to die. But here's the reality. He's passed on the torch to us. And there's a lot of authority that comes with that. And he said, hey, you 12, you're going to carry on the legacy of my church. And so there was, they were contributors the disciples were. And that's what we are today. The disciples are no longer here. So now we're, we're the ones. And so my encouragement, God designed you to be part of contributing to the mission. Pray about it. Ask them where you fit in that. Number three, don't be afraid of failing at the mission, but succeeding at what does not matter. Let me give you this gift You are not so important that the kingdom of God will fail if you fail. God's on the throne. He's on the throne. He's not worried about you failing. The only failure that we can truly have is to succeed at something that doesn't really matter. You can spend all this time building wealth, but for what end? I'll be honest with you. I get stuck there all the time. I see a counselor... Um, and I just started to open up and I said, you know, I don't know if I do matters. I don't know if I, I have purpose throughout my day. And I, and I just was sifting through just emotions and things I was going through and insecurities. And, and he said, what's this all about? I said, I am terrified that at the end of my life, I'll look back and realize that I didn't really do anything that mattered. That I didn't really build something that would last past my my finite life here on earth i said my hope is to make an eternal impact and if i don't do that i'm terrified of that so if i can encourage you if you're going to be terrified of something be afraid of that cuz there's tons of people sitting in there i've been there so i know what that's like and let me just encourage you jesus doesn't build you up as a disciple so that you'll fall flat on your face and won't make an impact that's not what it's about he doesn't test us in order for us to fail he tests us in order for us to succeed in him and giving him glory. It's building his kingdom, not our own. And so my encouragement is the only failure is to succeed at something less than the mission. So Let's do it together. Church let's be on mission. And so as I close here, the church has a mission and a purpose and it's to transform lives right? And that starts with us and we share that with other people. And so here, I'm going to pray here in a minute. Um, and so as we go into worship, here's what I would encourage you to do. Who is positioned in your life that you have special influence over that, that is, that God would ask you to share your story. Who can you share your story with? Who can you show the magnitude of God that you get to, you get to walk with every day? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we're just grateful that we get together. And God, you're you're always moving your church to the greater good and the greater why, and it's about you, God. There are times where I'm selfish where I just make it about me and it's got to be about me or else it's the wrong way. And God, it's so easy to get stuck there and sin and, and evil is always on the prowl. But God, you are gracious and you are powerful enough to get us out. God, you unify your church. And like Abraham, when we step into obedience of what you're calling us to do, There we find perfect unity within your bride. And it's not perfect because of what we do and don't do, God. It's perfect because you are perfect and you said it is. So God, we trust your holy name. We love you. And we acknowledge the purpose and mission you have for us. To experience transformation and to share it with others. And all God's people said. Amen.